and welcome to episode 28 of the 1099 for the week of February 8th. I am your host, as always, Josiah Nodden, on this windy, cold Jacksonville day. And with me today is the senior reporter at Kotaku and Mario maker extraordinaire, Patrick Klepek. Patrick, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to actually start right off with Mario Maker because at, at this point you've been involved in a near blood feud with Dan Reichert the past <laughs> few months over Mario Maker where people don't know, and I'm assuming they do, he's been building what can only be described as diabolical levels for you and for the most part, you proceed to beat those levels and stream it all out for everyone to watch. And it's been, it has to be to a certain extent fun for you, fun for Dan and fun for everyone watching. But really beyond that, how far has Mario Maker Mornings really gone toward establishing your YouTube Twitch quote unquote presence? Because it feels like so much of modern games coverage today has veered toward video, toward streaming and away from a lot of the traditional writing. And in a sense, you have to adapt to stay relevant. So how much bigger has this been than even you anticipated? I mean, it was far more than I anticipated. I mean, I started playing Mario just because I bought Mario Maker and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well stream it. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, I, you know, I have a full-time job at Kotaku. The stuff, uh, the video stuff is something I do on the side in my own personal time. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, increasingly uh, writing is going to become uh, more and more there's just not going to be as much money to fund writers. Um, and I may be lucky enough to keep doing that, but I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket because it's just that's not where the trend line is going. The trend line is going towards video. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to spend uh, a number of years working at Giant Bomb, which kind of gave me sort of a, a, a four-year uh, understanding of how video works, like what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are. And, and I think the, the real challenge is finding something that allows you to stand out, something that makes you unique. Uh, there are lots of people just playing video games on YouTube and on Twitch. And uh, even a strong personality isn't necessarily enough to break through. Um, or at least if you're going to do that, it's going to take a long, long time. And... So for me, it was a matter of just kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And the Mario stuff uh, kind of became uh, Spelunky 2.0 for me. Uh, <laughs> certainly one of my more popular features at Giant Bomb was uh, learning and understanding and playing Spelunky on a daily basis uh, over there. And I was always looking for something else that was like that, that I could play on a daily basis that uh, would be slightly skill-based, slightly entertainment-based, you know, kind of a, a mixture of things. Uh, and it was entertaining to watch with a single person. Um, and Mario Maker just kind of accidentally became that. And uh, I've kind of continued to ride that ever since. And the things with Dan uh, just arose by accident. You know, mm -hmm. why wouldn't I want to play the level that was made by uh, all my friends uh, at Giant Bomb? And so everything just kind of rolled from there as uh, Dan took that as an affront <laughs> To himself, um, and I uh, continued to persist in uh, annoyingly beating his stages. Did you initially feel a little bit of a reluctance to move over to video and streaming in general? Because when I went to college, I went for a traditional journalism background, and honestly, by the time I was starting to seriously freelance for IGN, for GameSpot, and these different sites, it was already moving toward video, and it was a little bit of a struggle for me to be like, geez, I just went through all of this shit to make sure that I knew how to write, and now writing's not that important. Did you initially feel that, or were you kind of look, it's where it's going. It's, I can't just stop it. I need to roll with it. 
Uh, I need to roll with it. You know, I intend to do this the long term. I, I intend to uh, keep getting paid to do it because um, that's sort of what you need to do if you want to. That's important. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out, even though the Internet is not a great place to get paid, you got to find a way to do it. And uh, so for me, it's just about placing my bets in multiple ways. Um, you know, it's just putting on a bunch of different horses at once. So, you know, it's it's learning what video is, you know, how to do it all myself. Um you know, from the recording to the editing to the promotion, you know, just figuring that out from start to finish uh, for myself. You know, and maybe I'll just always, you know, maybe I will continue to mostly be a writer um, or that'll be my bread and butter. But I liked the fact that I have multiple things that I'm working on at once. And I don't know necessarily that uh, writing becomes less important when it comes to video. I think one of the more interesting things I've seen in the last year or so uh, are the rise of people essentially doing video essays. Yeah. Um you know, Jim Sterling has made that a huge part uh, of what he does on YouTube. Um, what's the other one I'm trying to think of? Uh, Super Bunny Hop uh, yeah. is also uh, a popular video essayist. Um, who's the other one? Campster, who does uh, Errant Signal uh, on YouTube. There's also uh, the Game Maker's Toolkit. Like, these are all essentially people who have come up with sort of a, a specific shtick. Um, and they do video essays, and that involves writing. You know, for some of the, you know, I think for for some of them, maybe they're spitballing and then just putting video behind it. But I think for all the ones I just mentioned, they involve a lot of research. They involve reporting. They involve, edit. I mean, like there's just as much work, if not more work, going into putting together that essay in a video form uh, than what you would normally see uh, in writing. So I think, and that's one of the things that I haven't messed with too much, but I'm looking forward to getting into because I feel it plays to my strengths and it would allow me to stand out in a way that maybe I can't with just playing, you know, whatever's the, the new game of the week. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that there actually is a way to meld writing and video. Um, we're just sort of in the beginning stages of learning how that form comes together. And I do remember you doing a couple of video essays on Giant Bomb for a little bit, I thought, where you were at least experimenting with the idea. And also, I, I agree that, you know, the writing is still very important. And I feel like because there are not as many traditional people who just write about games. There are a lot still, but not as many. I actually seek those people out and find the ones that are, you know, Nick Capazzoli, Carolyn Pettit, uh, Tom McShay, the people who are really interesting to read. So yeah, they're absolutely still out there. And something also unique about Kotaku, and I'm not, please correct me if I'm wrong if you're not still doing this, but it seemed like certain writers were almost on a beat where after a game was released, let's say Destiny is a good example, a writer would stay on that game and report on everything that was happening afterward because so often at least before there's this massive hype cycle before a game comes out the game comes out the reviews come out and then people abandon it uh, right are a lot of your not your writers but a lot of kotaku's writers still kind of on a specific beat or a specific game for a long time afterward oh yeah absolutely um that was something that was instituted uh you know about a year before or six months or something before before i came onto the site mm -hmm. but uh, the idea was that yeah that cycle seemed to make less and less sense when you're looking at what was happening uh, elsewhere in the video game industry, you know, streaming and YouTube uh, were increasingly becoming more popular, and the stuff that was working there was not. Uh, I mean, not that there isn't uh, sort of like looking ahead coverage previews of games that are coming out, but so much of what was popular there was like crazy things that people were doing in games that were already released, and in some cases, games that have released years ago. Um, yeah. And I think the games press for a long time, uh, because of the business model. Uh, focused very squarely on what was next. And then once that was out, moving on to whatever was next after that. And Kotaku has tried to straddle between that, which is to say uh, both covering what's coming up, um, but you know, making sure to not forget what's already out there because 
Uh, you know, some of the most popular articles that go up on the site uh, every couple of weeks are when a world record is broken in in some game, yeah. whether it's Fallout or Mario Brothers or or whatever, Dark Souls. Um, and and there's just still lots of interesting things happening in these communities. They just don't get that much attention. And I think YouTube pays attention to that. And I think Kotaku's try to pay attention to that. And so, yeah, we aren't like specifically uh, assigned. You know, it's not like, hey, you're covering this game. It's more if you end up getting into a game, that kind of becomes your beat where it's like, okay, well, you make sure you're like checking the subreddit, you know, making sure you're checking uh, what's happening on YouTube uh, and making sure you're checking like the popular message boards and just like, what is that community doing? What are the interesting things that are happening? Because there's probably stuff that's underreported that a lot of other people would find interesting. And, and we have found that to be the case over and over again. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's DLC, there's updates, there's just games change more now, of course, than ever before after the release. What do you think that means for the nature of reviews with scores tied to the end of them? Because I know Kotaku doesn't have scores at the end, but you look at something like Metal Gear Solid Five, which as soon as it hit, you'd see 10 after 10 after 10. Um, and after its release, there were the, you know additional microtransactions. There was that silly base insurance, and it's become an overall, in my opinion, worse product. It's not as good to play. So is traditional review coverage, does it still have its place, in your opinion, kind of with where we're at now? Do you think you can just, you know, evaluate a game as is and then walk away from it? Or do you think you need to do something like Polygon where you're updating it as the game changes? Or maybe even what you guys do at Kotaku, where you're not really changing the score, you're just covering the the tail of the game? Well, I, th- I think reviews are still useful, you know, whether there's a score attached or not, uh, I think is... You know, that comes down to publication to publication. But people still want to know, is this thing good when it comes out? So that, yeah. that's going to continue to be uh, a useful service. Uh, I think what we're finding, though, is that there are lots of other useful services um, that involve going just beyond whether a game is good or not. And uh, that's that's what I find, you know, interesting. Uh, you know, that's, that's I think, what a lot of... Uh, I think we talked to a lot of games writers. They're not necessarily psyched to run from one thing to the next thing. Like they would like to spend more time yeah. uh, with a game in the same way that lots of players do. Um, and so, you know, by the very necessity of the job, you still are you can't play games as much as maybe the average person does. But you know, that's what's been cool about uh, Kotaku's approach is that I've played hundreds of hours of Mario Maker. Part of because of what I'm doing personally, and then part of what I'm doing uh, to cover what's happening in that community. You know, I was. It was cool that I was able to write a story last week that was, you know, talking about how Nintendo, you know, routinely erases people's stages without giving them a reason why, even though they've been played, even though they've been beaten, um, they're just erased from the map and no one else is reporting on that. And the only reason I can report on that is because I'm paying that close attention to what's happening in that community. And I don't know how deeply you get into the traffic figures of Kotaku, but and you mentioned that, you know, people are breaking records. That does very well for you. But just generally, do you notice that people are really reading this new content where you know here's these new information about mario maker way after or the witcher 3 here's this interesting story about someone doing something with a mod is that really sticking is it working for you guys oh yeah i would say that does a far better uh traffic for us than anything related to you know sort of upcoming preview coverage you know occasionally when you get like fallout 4 announced like of course that's gonna do incredible but like i would say generally speaking our post-release coverage does better than uh, and, and is more fruitful, right? There are just more angles. There are more things to write about once the game is out than just, is it good? You know, that's kind of like a one and done. Um, so there is just more ways to approach a game afterwards. So, I mean, the traffic on all the Gawker sites, including Kotaku, is completely transparent. You can yeah. see what each 
article does um, um, and compare it yourself to kind of see what the trend lines are. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's we wouldn't keep doing it if it wasn't financially viable. Um, yeah. And and uh, and certainly you do some things that aren't financially viable because they're the right thing to do. Um, but you know, Kotaku is a business like a lot a lot of other outlets, um, and the post release coverage does incredibly well for us. Yeah, that's super encouraging to hear. Actually, that you know you can not just leave a game in the dust and actually do more with it afterward. And to back it up a bit, I mean, you've written for One Up, MTV, G Four, Giant Bomb, Kotaku, and really a whole bunch of other sites that I probably didn't list. But pe- <laughs> yeah, people, I've been around the horn a little bit. And people who have followed you in games media have actually really seen you kind of grow up inside the industry in a sense because. You seem to have this strong passion for breaking news and writing news and being involved in games media before you could even drive a car. So right. I know that you love the Giant Bomb, you know, Giant Bomb community, Giant Bomb staff and everything like that. But when you were making that decision to move to Kotaku, was there was a lot of that because you had a desire to write more in-depth news features and stories, which is a big part of Kotaku? Uh, you know, there was a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them was that uh, Giant Bomb, uh, I think most people would agree, is a site uh, that is strongest uh, when there are collaborators um, in which people are uh, in videos together. It's kind of what, it's what the site was built on. It's what its greatest strengths are. Um, it's why people love all of the staff members there um, because you get to know them and their likes and dislikes and the things that you hate about them and the things that you love about them. You know, it's 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 what the site uh, was so ahead of the curve on uh, was you know following in OneUp.com's. Uh, footsteps of realizing that it's not necessarily always about the games. Uh, it's maybe sometimes what people think about those games. Um, and Giant Bomb just evolved that into a business uh, in a way that One Up was never able to. And so for me, you know, Chicago uh, was something I, I had to move back. Um, it, it was it was something I had always intended to do. And then when it came around, I was very thankful uh, that uh, Jeff Hersman allowed me to stay on. Um, and it was fun for a while, but it just became clear to me that. It, I wasn't getting as much out of it um, mm. because I was by myself, and that was kind of just always going to be the <laughs> always going to be the case. Um, and so I was looking for something different to do. And, uh, and also in the back of my head, I was like, you know, I wanted, I would love to be independent someday. I'd like to be disconnected from a website. I like yeah. to do things for myself. And that wasn't going to happen at Giant Bomb, where all of my writing and all of my video uh, was built into there. I wasn't building a platform for myself. Um, and so Kotaku, you know, I told them up front, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not that I'm not interested in doing video, but I'd like to, you know, that's all mine. You know, I'd like to do that on the side and and have that be something I own and and work at building. Um, and so those two things hand in hand. Um, and also, there, you know, Kotaku is a writing-based site, and by uh, it was. I liked the idea of working with a bunch of writers again. That's kind of what I got into uh, in in the first place. So it's kind of a bunch of factors came together. Uh, And then also, you know, like you said, I've worked for a bunch of different sites. I get restless. And, you know, I was at Giant Bomb longer than I was, far longer than I was at anywhere else, Um, you know, almost four years. And so it just felt time for a change. Compared to when you were at uh, G4 and X-Play, how much more comfortable have you grown speaking on video, speaking in podcasts, speaking on camera from... I mean, that time I remember seeing you and listening to you on, I think it was Feedback was the podcast mm-hmm, on G4, mm-hmm. compared to now. Like, what's the difference there? It's just sheer uh, practice. Yeah. Um, it's just doing it over and over again. And, uh, you know, what's been great about the stuff I've done on my own, on, on especially when, when Mario Maker stuff kicked in and I was doing stuff on a daily basis, uh, is doing it every day and learning how to support a show on your own. You know, I was always incredibly lucky at Giant Bomb to be surrounded by just incredibly funny, interesting people. Um, 
and you could lean on that, you know, um, and you could kind of play your role. And, and I was fine with that, but it also meant I wasn't learning as much about how to hold my own in a conversation. Uh, and by doing stuff on my own, I've had to figure that out. Like, what am I good at? What am I bad at? And, um, find the balance between that stuff. And I think you, you know, if you watch even the stuff I did at the beginning of last year to the end of, uh, of last year that, uh, I, I like to, I, I'm pretty sure you can look at that and see that I've become more confident and, yeah. and able to, to host those things. And that's literally just doing it every day. It's a skill. Um, and you just get better at it or at least better at identifying what you're bad at, um, by doing it more often. And you mentioned Jim Sterling before and, uh, kind of this desire to be more independent. Do you think Patreon is something that is viable for a lot of people moving forward? Do you think it'll have to evolve because before it becomes more viable? I mean, I know it's, you haven't done it yourself, but you look like, you know, kind of funny's had success. Jim Sterling has had success. I know you're at Kotaku right now and also doing your independent thing, but mm -hmm. do you think five years down the line, Patreon will still be a thing, or do you think it'll take a new form? I mean, out of Patreon or some other thing. I mean, the idea of, of crowdfunding creatives who have a desire to go independent but don't necessarily have the financial stability set up, right? Like for a lot of people, they're they want to go independent, but they're not willing to completely slide back their salaries because all sorts of reasons. Maybe they own a house, maybe they have a family. Yeah. Like that's those are complications that things like Patreon and Kickstarter can help accommodate for um, before you are selling something uh, that can make up that. So uh, I think that's going to continue to exist. I think there's a limit at how much it can support, right? And I think there's also, uh, you also have to remember that the kinds of people that can generate a bunch of money are people that are already sort of like well-positioned in the first place, already have followings, already have people that would, you know, are excited to see them try something new and go independent. So, you know, they, it's not like uh, just a random person's going to go on Patreon and say like, I'd like to go independent. And then suddenly they're getting $10,000 a month like Jim <laughs> Sterling was. It's just not going to happen. Um, so there's, you know, there's some complicating factors on, on who that is going to be successful for. Um, but yeah, I, 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 can certainly imagine myself thinking that uh, was uh, an interesting uh, way to go. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to not have to think about that. You know, I have the Twitch subscriptions in which people are are kind enough to um, pay five dollars a month, which lets me buy new equipment, which lets the you know allows me to do some stuff on the side that I can that I can justify um, in a way. But that's not my you know that's not my uh, that's not what's paying my rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, bonus. Uh, but also, it's basically a tip jar for people, right? Like, if I was to say, hey, I'm quitting my job, this is now suddenly way more important to me, you know, I'm, I guess it's a, a lot more people would be uh, willing to to help out. But I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to kind of have my cake and eat it, too. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do for uh, at least the foreseeable future. But um, like I said, you know, my intention is uh, to be independent at some point. It's just a matter of, like, when does that make sense? And uh, I feel like that'll... Sometime in the future, not anytime soon, but sometime in the future. <laughs> and speaking of paying the rent, uh, a recent trend uh, I feel like I've been seeing a lot more is a lot of different traditional game sites, whether it be GameSpot or Polygon, um, really bringing in coverage of Star Wars, of Marvel movies, of you know, geek culture in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Kotaku has always had kind of a hand in of doing a little bit outside the normal, you know, here's a brand new trailer, here's a preview for this. Uh, but it's really starting to happen more than I, I feel like I've ever seen it. And it's just been interesting to watch because do you think that this is hinting toward the idea that video games by themselves aren't enough to keep websites of that magnitude going? Or is this just some sort of natural evolution? 
I think I think it's a, a natural evolution. I mean, I think you know I would draw a distinction between what Polygon is doing and 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 sort of the some of the nerd stuff that shows up on on Kotaku. Like on Kotaku, it is largely Evan uh, Narcisse, who is a huge comics fan. He just he likes writing about comics, so he writes about comics in addition to writing about video games. Uh, on Friday, Steven Titillo, uh, our editor in chief, wrote about wrestling because he's super into wrestling. Yeah. And so, I think what what Kotaku specifically tries to encourage is, you know, there's like a new, brand new Star Wars trailer. Like that's a moment, right? Like that's mm-hmm. something that most video game fans are going to be into. So, um, that's an instance in which I think we just look at, like, look, like you're already here. Like, watch the Star Wars trailer while you're here. Um, you know, like a, a Polygon, you know, hired a, an entertainment reporter. They seem to be going down a path where they are really broadly expanding it's not so much just their staff is interested in it like they're interested in making that like a core tenant of of their business um so i I think for us it's more just our you know our editors encourage us to you know like i wrote a lot about horror films in october just because like i was doing that anyway and why not share that with the the folks on kotaku so um i think what you're seeing just generally you know if you broaden that uh, yeah, even more. You know, when you watch people's YouTube channels, when you look at what Greg Miller, uh, how they started out, they started out by building their company on comedy and entertainment and the other things they were interested in, and then folded games into it once they left their jobs at IGN. And I think these days, between Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, Periscope, like there's, a, you can connect with people about what they like beyond just what you originally got interested in them for. And so I think that's you're just seeing. A, a more a larger acceptance of that yeah. um, is, is this idea of just like if I already like your opinions on video games maybe I'll like your opinions on Marvel movies right so I think it's just embracing uh, that side of the uh, sort of like personalization of uh, editorial personalities that uh, whether it's on YouTube or Kotaku or Polygon yeah I think it's you know the, the key thing is like as long as it's genuine as long as it's not someone saying hey go cover this Marvel movie you don't care about. Instead, it's like for you, hey, uh, you know, you like Jurassic Park and dinosaurs, so I'm going to talk about Jurassic Park and dinosaurs and stuff to that effect. Like if someone asked me to go write about uh, some random sport like soccer that I don't really care about, it wouldn't make sense. And Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's just doubling down on what you're interested in because there, that's a way to connect with other people who aren't also interested in that. Yeah, and that personality-based stuff that a lot of like i feel like giant bomb had a big part in kind of pushing forward you know like you said you you're interested in that specific person and not it's not as much GameSpot's opinion it's this writer at GameSpot's opinion it's not as much giant bomb as a collective it's i like what jeff gertzman thinks and almost like an rss feed with your twitter you can pick out the specific opinions you want and then kind of go through it like that exactly so, yeah i think in that way it does work and a lot of this conversation has been about the changing nature of all of this stuff. And I think a lot of people look at what you did and what you do. And that's, you know, getting into the industry young, uh, having this passion, following it and going to a lot of different outlets and really want to emulate that. I know when I was coming up, you were one of the people, Ryan Davis, Jeff Gertzman, Kevin Van Ord were those people who I saw and I was like, I want to follow like that sort of uh, that sort of outline. But do you think what you did, what Jeff did and what a lot of people who uh, are still in the industry did do you think that's viable today? And I guess what I mean by that is people can freelance. If they just want to be a traditional writer, they can freelance for years and never find the full-time job at Game Informer, at GameSpot that they want because there are fewer and fewer openings in that realm. So is that traditional, I want to write about video games for a living dream, has it changed so much that it's 
it's hard to really think that is the best route if that's what you're into. Do you think you have to have the idea of I also want to do video or I want to go independent? Is that I want to write an outlet dream still alive? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's never been easier to write about video games, but it's never been harder to get noticed yeah. uh, is, is what I would say. You know, there are so many platforms to share what you have to say, but uh, get it, cutting through the noise is extremely difficult. Um, but I mean, new people do it all the time. Like, I, I think the it's worth keeping in mind just as it was true in the past, it's true now. There are just very few of those jobs that are going to allow you to do that full time, um, especially if you live in you know, a metropolitan city that has like a reasonably high cost of living, right? You know, I mean, there are other lots of writers that they live in, you know, like Iowa or Michigan or Illinois uh, or Wisconsin. And like they can make it work where like they don't get as much work as the high end freelancers, but that's okay because it's a lot cheaper to live there. So they can adjust for that. Um, but it's definitely still possible. It's just, I think it's just, you know, there's no guarantees. It's not a it's not a trade in the same way that uh, you know becoming an electrician is. Like there's yeah. always going to be a desire for you know you can start an electrician business if you're you go learn and study that and then uh, people are going to need stuff to take care of it. Just that doesn't work that way in video games. Um, and and also the consolidation of media means that the jobs that are available are probably going to go to the people that are already established and out there. And yep. th- that goes for a couple of reasons. It's because you know. If you if your company needs to make money, if you need to guarantee that uh, you've got people that are going to be smart, competent, and drive traffic, it's not a huge shock that you're going to pick the people that have already been doing it for a while. Um, the unfortunate byproduct of that is that it squeezes out or doesn't allow in new voices. Um, it means that like games writing uh, tends to reflect like uh, a very specific type of demographic that got into games writing in the first place, like you know straight white dudes. Like yep. that's essentially. Uh, what it is across the board, and then as media consolidates and there are fewer jobs and people become risk averse, you double down on that, and it's that's totally understandable from a business perspective, and it doesn't come from a, a sense of malice, or at least uh, all my experiences with it have never been from uh, a place of malice. But it's unfortunate because it it holds back the diversity of criticism, it holds back the diversity of ideas, um, because it's tied up in these business problems. But uh, that's what's exciting about. It not being, you know, about YouTube and Twitch and Patreon is that you can share smart ideas. And if you can find small communities, you can hopefully make money on that in a way that allows you to become sustainable outside of the wait for there to be an opening at CBS or Game Informer. Yeah, no, I agree. And one last question, and then I'll promise I'll let you go. Uh, you mentioned the, ter- the term diversity of criticism. Do you think right now we are seeing more interesting, unique, diverse criticism than we ever saw before, or am I just reading Twitter too much and looking too much into it? No, it's 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 absolutely true. Um, I mean, the the wonderful part about the internet is that we're also you know the same way that I said uh, it's difficult to cut through the noise, but then there are so many people speaking. Um, so we do, we are kind of living in this. Uh, incredible golden age um, where so many different kinds of people are sharing their thoughts about video games. The distressing part is just so few of them are making enough money to do that more often, right? Like they're doing it in their free time. They're doing it on the side um, as opposed to uh, it being the thing they think about day in and day out, which I, you know, I wish were the case. And unfortunately uh, is not uh, the case quite yet for uh, lots of promising folks. But yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I read way more women and trans and gay critiques and observations about video games now than I ever did before. Um, I think that's just an indisputable fact. Then it's really, really awesome to see. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for spending the time. Always enjoy talking to you and so happy everything is going great at Kotaku. Great with 
your insane Mario Maker challenges lately. And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to watch those, they totally should. At this point, people are randomly tweeting me being like, oh my god, he did it. Or oh my god, he's missing this one part in this level. How is he not seeing this? And it's been fun to participate in. So I I am getting endless entertainment out of it. Awesome. That's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's all I want out of it. You know, I, you know, it was fun to explain sort of the business end and some of the stuff that I think about that sort of the high concept. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just genuinely excited that I get to play video games and people, uh, enjoy watching me act like a dope. So, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that brings me endless joy. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome way to make a living. So thanks again. And thanks everyone for listening and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.